0: Keeping up with Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. I am your host, Lonnie Jones. My wife, Jackie, and I moved to the city of Huntsville in 1986 for me to be a youth and family minister. I have been a minister since 1980. I have served in this community as a police chaplain assigned to a SWAT team since 1992. And I've been in private practice as a licensed professional counselor since 1998. I'm also an adventure educator and an avid outdoorsman. I dabble in rock climbing and I goof around with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Our life has been full of many wonderful experiences and some just outright adventures. I used to write about those things in a little church bulletin article, so now instead of asking you to read those things, we're just going to talk about them in our podcast. And as we talk about them, we're going to talk about the facts. The facts lead to concepts, and the concepts lead to application. One caveat about the facts is, for the most part, we're going to tell you the facts just as they happened. But every now and then, we're going to tell you the way other people have told us they remember it happening with a little bit of embellishment. It's all good, clean fun and for educational purposes. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy Keeping Up With Jones. Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure is sponsored by sj General Contractors. sj General Contractors is licensed in both Alabama and Tennessee. This family-owned business provides a mass grading, storm drainage, sewer and concrete improvement, asphalt paving, erosion control, demolition, and heavy hauling. If you're in need of any of these services, you can contact them at 931-433-4660. That is 931-433-4660. If you'd like to be employed by this family-owned company, Three Ws and a dot SJNL dot com. WWW dot dot com. The lady on the phone said, Peggy's log cabin. And I said, yes, I'd like to order some roses, please, but I need to make sure that they can be delivered by three o'clock. She said, Well, where will they be delivered? I said, Ridgecrest Elementary. She said, well, who are they going to? I said, well, the name on the card should say Jackie Jones. She flipped some papers around and said, oh, yeah, we can do that by three today. She said, now, what do you need? I said, I need eight red roses. And she said, well, what should be on the card? And I said, well, the card should say 170 yards running. She she said, "I'm, I'm sorry. I said, yes, that is 170 running. She said, what, what does that mean? I said, well, that's a need-to-know basis, and you really don't need to know. She was polite enough not to pry, and I paid for my roses and <laughs> finished my day. I made this phone call from the kitchen of a small cabin in Sharps Cove. I was in the company of a gentleman named Mr. Ray Renfro. Now, how I got there is a very interesting story. This was on January the 27th of the year 2000. The Sunday prior to that, I was preaching at the Maysville Church of Christ. Now, you got to understand, this is my second year in private practice. I had been a full-time youth minister, youth and family minister, since 1986 when we moved to Huntsville. And in 1998, I went into private practice and was actually totally, completely self-employed. Now, as a full-time minister, we had a a, a pretty good working agreement, but part of the working as a minister is that uh, your Sundays are usually occupied. I had two Sundays a year that I could travel for vacation, and I had two Sundays a year I could be out of town and speak for another church. I remember one of the elders. One time we were discussing our schedules, and 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 he said, "Well, you know, we don't pay you to go to church." I said, "Yes, you pay me not to go to church somewhere else." But as a self-employed guy, I had decided that I was going to hunt in Paint Rock Valley on that Sunday morning. It was the last Sunday of the of, of uh, what well, next to the last Sunday of deer season in two thousand. And I was going to hunt in this little club that I was a member of in Paint Rock Valley. And I was going to come out of the woods and attend services at a little bitty church up there called the Garth Church of Christ. Now, I've never been in the Garth Church of Christ, and I don't even think it exists anymore. But that was my plan in 2000. I'm going to hunt in the woods. I'm going to come out of the woods, and I'm going to go to church at Garth. Well, it just so happened that my phone had rung. And a dear friend of mine, Tim Orbison, had said, hey, look, in the month of January, the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be out of the country. He had been invited to go on an archaeological dig at En And he said, I'm going to be gone three weeks, and would you fill in for me if I can arrange it? Well, not having to be anywhere specifically for a church because I was now self-employed and a minister at large, I agreed to do that. So instead of going hunting at Garth, I was preaching at Maysville. And I think in either my introductory remarks or either somewhere during my lesson, I had mentioned the fact that Tim being out of the country had foiled my plans to hunt on a Sunday morning and then attend church. After the services, I was standing in the foyer talking to some gentlemen, and, and this, this older gentleman walked up, distinguished-looking fellow with gray hair, the features of a farmer, and he shook my hand, and he said, well, what are you doing Thursday?" And I said, well, Thursday is my clinic day. I'll probably be at the clinic. And he just nodded and said, well, okay, and, and left. Immediately, several gentlemen circled around me and said, hey, did that gentleman just invite you to go hunting with him? I said, well, I don't know. Maybe he was going to. They said, if he did, you better go. Well, I ran out into the parking lot and caught up with the, the man and said, excuse me, sir, did you need something from me next Thursday? And he goes, well, yes, uh, I, I thought maybe you'd like to sit in the woods with me. I said, well, I would be honored to sit in the woods with you. I'd be glad to go. I can make some arrangements and make that happen. So I end up going to his house on Thursday, January the 27th. And, and, and he called and said, okay, are you still hunting with me on Thursday? Yes, sir, I am. He said, well, you can be at my house about 8.30, and if you don't mind, bring a biscuit with some mustard. <laughs> so I brought some biscuits, and we drove from his house on this little machine. I think it was a gator through this hardwood forest, and then the forest opened up to this massive greenfield. Now, the greenfield was actually like an L-shape. It was kind of like a, a fairway on a golf course. It's bordered on one side by this huge pine thicket planted in rows. You can see through them. On the other side, there's a little creek with brambles and briars and tangles. And he takes me to the far end of it and sits me in this little wooden box. Sitting in that box, looking straight ahead, he said, from there till the, the tree line was 200 yards. Now, the greenfield made a hard right and went up a hill. And he said, I'll be sitting in the shooting house at the top of that hill, we'll be kind of in an L-shaped ambush. He didn't use the word l shape ambush. I did. And he said, and you shoot anything you want to shoot, you have a good day. And so I sat down in this little box, and I realized that I might see the deer of a lifetime sitting in this little box. And I wasn't about to shoot the first thing that walked out. Well, as it turned out, over the course of several hours, I saw 75 deer. At 11.30 that day, there were 13 turkeys and 15 deer in this field. And from the far, far end of it, I see this little red doe separate herself from the group. And out of the creek bottom comes a set of antlers. This majestic set of antlers comes walking up into the field. And and, and this deer's facing me at 200 yards. While I thumb the safety on my rifle, I get a good cheek weld, and I begin to cycle my breathing, and I'm watching this deer, hoping that he will turn sideways so I can shoot him. And just about the time I get settled in, waiting for him to make the wrong move, I hear this explosion of a 300 Winchester. Boom! This deer rolls deer, run everywhere, turkeys fly off. Suddenly this buck kicks, rises up, and starts running helter-skelter around this field. He bounds a couple of times toward the left, and then he turns and he's crossing this greenfield. I don't know who had told me or even if I'd read it, but it said that if a deer's walking and you can't get him to stop, you put your scope on him, then you move in front of him and wait on him. And when his chest touches the vertical line of your scope, you pull the trigger. If the deer's running, they said, you bring your scope in front of him, and when he enters the glass, you pull the trigger. Well, this deer's bounding to go out of this field. I swing my rifle, get to the place I want to be, and when that brown fur enters my viewport, I pull the trigger. Just a few minutes, a little two-way radio we were using crackled, and Mr. Ray said, did you shoot that same deer or did you shoot another deer? I said, well, I shot the deer you were shooting at. He goes, well, I'm going to get out of the stand and I'm going to walk through the pines and look for him. Uh, I'll come out on your side and don't shoot me. I said, yes, sir. And I sat there and, and sitting there, and, and remember, I hadn't been hunting a long time. This, I hadn't had any success as a hunter ever to speak of. And so I'm sitting here in this box blind with probably what is my biggest deer. And, and there's question marks. I can't shoot a deer running. I'm not that good a shot. Well, Mr. Renfro sticks his head out of the, the trees way, way up the field. I see that uh, hunter orange knit cap. And he waves at me, and I grab my rifle, leave everything else in, in my box. And I go running down this green field in these uh, coveralls and the heavy boots. Not a pretty sight. I don't look good running when I'm dressed to run, much less when I'm dressed like the abominable snowman. But I run up on him and step into the woods, and there lies this, this eight-point buck. And he said, where'd you shoot that deer at? Well, I said, I tried to shoot him in the front right shoulder. And we roll him over and sure enough, the front right shoulder has an entrance wound. There's no exit wound. I've broken both shoulders. He said, Well, that's your deer. I said, No, sir, I clearly see here on on the upper Part of the the back, right behind the ribs, you've got a, a fatal shot. You you already got a mark on this deer. Uh, you know, I saw him roll, and I just didn't want him to get away. I didn't want to have to trade him. Uh, well, if you hadn't shot him, we'd have never found him. I said, no, sir, you can't prove that. And no, no, this is your deer. Well, we haggled a minute over the deer, but decided that we would just uh, share the deer, and so uh, the antlers would stay at his house, and uh, I would get some of the meat. And I think he even put a plaque beneath it that it was killed by me and him. But that's the first trophy buck I could claim. And so I had arranged it with my wife. This is before anybody had cell phones, that if I ever killed a deer in the woods, that she would know that day because she'd get a message at school. Now, the message wouldn't be from the front office. She'd get roses delivered. And if she got six roses, it was a six-point. If she got four roses, it was a four-point. And she was going to get eight red roses that day because I would killed an eight-point. And that's what the lady at uh, Peggy's log cabin couldn't decipher, but that was all the note she needed, was that I'd killed this deer, and it was about 170 yards away, and it was running when I hit him. Uh, lucky shot, shot of a lifetime, but I'll still take it. Fast forward 14 years. January the 30th. 2014 the night before and and i had been allowed to hunt on mr ray's place several times usually about once a year i call it my annual hunt with mr ray uh he would call and say hey you want to go sit in the woods yes sir i'll I'll go well he'd call me this evening and said hey you want to hunt in the morning and and i said yes sir I, i would like to he said well it's too cold for me to hunt but you know where you can go and so i had driven out that morning by myself had found the entrance to this field this is a different field than this is actually the the brambles on the other side of the green field and uh, i left my truck and crawled under a fence walked across this little creek and gone up into this shooting stand and it was 7 degrees the entire world was covered in frost and ice I had taken an extra pair of coveralls with me, and once I got set up in the, the stand, I put them on backwards so that I could get out of them quickly if I needed to, but at least be a little bit warmer. I'm sitting there with my hands through my coveralls like a muppet. And about 6:45, I see this deer. He comes out of a clearing on the mountain. Now, the lady that owned the mountain had never allowed me to hunt deer on her property. But this this deer walked out, and I could see him. He comes out into a clearing. He walked down the mountain. He came across the road, and he entered the field that I was hunting. Brambles and briars and thickets, but he was on a clear path, and he's walking straight at me. I slid my gun up and propped it. It was so cold that morning that the, the, the lens of my scope was beginning to frost over. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, you're going to have a gun malfunction and you're not going to be able to get this deer. This deer's walking straight at me. And at some point, he's either going to walk right under me and I'm not going to be able to have a good shot. I don't like to shoot them in the neck when they're facing dead on. It, it's not a high percentage shot for me. And I thought, well, maybe he'll get far enough down that he'll see my truck and he'll spook. And I've got all these scenarios going on. And I don't know if he heard something, saw something, or saw my truck. But magically, he just stopped and turned broadside, looking to my left. I settled in on the gun, thumbed the safety on my Ruger Mark II M77 bolt action 30-06 and squeezed off a shot. And The deer just sat down. He didn't flop. He didn't tumble. He didn't fall. He sat down and he laid down. I was stunned. Here is the biggest deer I've ever seen on the hoof. and He's lying 70 yards in front of me. I I have no idea how big this deer is. I just know he's a big deer. I get out of the stand, take my coveralls off. I don't even go check this deer. I watched him long enough to know he was dead, and I go to the truck. I cross the little creek, I climb over the little fence, and I'm there. And while I'm at the truck, I hear the gator start up at, at, at the cabin. And in just a few minutes, this little green John Deere rolls up right beside the deer. I walk out, go under the fence, cross the creek, and walk back up. Mr. Ray standing, walking around this deer. Never breaks a smile, never looks excited, never loses his composure, just looks at me and says, looks like 16 roses to me. <laughs> 14 years later, almost 14 years to the day, this gentleman remembers that my wife will get roses because I've killed a deer. <laughs> if you had been there, and you'd heard that conversation, you'd said, how, how in the world can you look at this deer lying on the frozen ground and be thinking about roses? But you wouldn't have had the context for it. You wouldn't have had the understanding that Mr. Ray and I had. You wouldn't have the history that Mr. Ray and I had had. But knowing the context of that, and knowing that this kind, compassionate gentleman had remembered how a young man was treating his wife over his deer hunting has always been a special memory to me it's always filled me with a sense of warmth and a sense of amusement that this old farmer a guy that worked for the county and killed more deer than I've ever seen remembered that 14 years ago this kid, would send his wife roses when he killed a deer. I don't know if he ever followed my tradition. I know that my friendship with him and his ability to to guide me, and, and when we weren't hunting, he would always ask about the young people at the church. He would always ask about the young families at the church, and he would always ask what I thought needed to be done to help them be stronger at the church. Conversations with Mr. Ray was very, very deep always about other people. I remember we hunted one day and we didn't see anything. It was very rare to be on his farm and and not see any deer. And you know, he never shot another deer when I was with him. The only deer he ever shot when I was with him was that first time that we were together in, in, in the year 2000. But we always hunted at least once a year together. And I remember one day standing out in this beautiful field with the sun shining on us And us remarking that if the worst thing you had in life to complain about was the fact that you got to spend the day in the woods and didn't see any deer, you were indeed living a charmed and blessed life. We had a friendship that went beyond deer hunting. We had a friendship that went deeply spiritual because we were members of the same body of believers. But that little special connection... That, that, that little connection over the fact that after 14 years, he'd remembered this this little tradition, and it either amused him or impressed him or just stuck with him. And to me, it was it was an inconsequential thing. It was just something that I wanted to do for Jackie, and it was a little tradition, and it didn't seem like it had much significance except between she and I. And the only reason he knew about it was I had to borrow his phone because in those days there were no cell phones and he heard the conversation I had with Peggy's log cabin. I wonder, is there something you can do? Is there a tradition you can create? Is there something you can start? Is there some kindness? Is there something that you can do that is seemingly insignificant? That after you start it, that after you do it, that after you show someone or after you do it for someone, that years later, a, a decade and a half almost later, on a bitter cold morning, when it's the opposite of spring and it's seven degrees and the world is a monochromatic gray someone could look at that situation and think of roses. Keeping up with Jones, the Lonnie Jones Podcast Adventure is sponsored by us. What? We sponsor ourselves? Is that even legal? Check us out on Amazon. You can have access to the titles of Pedagogue the Youth Ministry book by Lonnie Jones. Cognitive Spiritual Development, a Christ-centered approach to spiritual self-esteem. Grappling with Life, Controlling Your Inside Space, a small essay using the principles of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to talk about psychological and emotional self-defense. If I Were a Mouse, a children's book written and illustrated by Lonnie Jones. And then The Selfish Real, a very short story about a decision. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel to see archived lessons and presentations from across the country, some videos with uh, rope tricks and knots. Don't forget to visit the uh, Facebook page, 550Guys, to learn about the little rope men that we make and that we invented and that we make. And then be sure to click like, subscribe, and share. This is Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones Podcast Adventure.